welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of Who Cares, What's the Point? The podcast about the mind for people who think. My name is Saab Johal, your host and producer of the show, and you can follow us on Twitter at WCWTP or go to whocareswhatsthepoint.com for more details about the show. Right now, we have a health hazard to democratic functioning. Those are the words of Professor Sam Weinberg of the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University in the United States, my guest on the show today. Professor Weinberg and his colleagues have been looking at the sorts of errors that we can make when looking at information sources and how we establish whether they are true or not. His findings are worrying and surprising and raise big questions about how we use the internet and the devices we use to access it, or indeed how we may be being used by others through these devices and the interfaces we access to use the internet and the information on it. Have a listen to the conversation between Sam and myself coming right up. Thank you, Sam, for joining us today. I wonder if we could uh, start by you explaining what got you interested in this uh, topic area to start off with. For about the past 30 years, I've been studying how people make sense of the past with historical materials. My primary interest is how our understanding of the past influences our conceptions of the present. And one of my main concerns has been how uh, both young people as well as professional historians make their way through fragmented and contentious primary sources. And so it's not a very uh, big leap to go from the evaluation of sources about the past to how we come to determine what is credible in, in terms of the sources that we encounter online about political and social issues. So that seems to me the key. It's that establishing credibility and how it is that we use our previous experience uh, and perhaps the categories that we uh, organize that information in, in terms of our uh, experience in the past and how that influences how we sort information and categorize information that we're presented with in the present. Yes, very much so. Obviously, there's differences in dealing with print sources or archival sources and digital sources. I think that the uh, there are many more challenges in terms of the way that information can be doctored or changed in digital form than in printed form. Nonetheless, there is a continuum that goes between the two. And that's what you're particularly interested in in the, the report and the study that I've seen you uh, writing about recently is the differences that... Uh, that exist between looking at digital sources uh, and the way that people process traditional print media where they have it in front of them. That's kind of, it's, it's not so easily um, manipulated uh, and changed in order to lead people down a particular path. That's, that's very much the case. Um, <clears throat> there is a philosopher at the university of Connecticut uh, named Michael Lynch, who wrote an op-ed column in the New York Times back in March where he said that the Internet is the best fact-checking device that humanity could have invented 
at the same time as being the best biased confirming uh, device that we could have invented. And uh, in that sense, what we're trying to understand is how people make thoughtful decisions so that they they can use the internet as a fact-checking device rather than simply turning it into an echo chamber for beliefs that they already espouse. And maybe we can come back to that because I think that's hugely relevant, the way that we um, can set up these bubbles for ourselves, but how systems that we use can uh, set up bubbles that we perhaps are not consciously aware of unless we're made aware of them but also how some of the um, systems that are put in place to safeguard us perhaps uh, means that we perhaps are maybe protected from the worst of the internet, but don't learn skills as to how to protect ourselves. Well, I, I, I think that, that the question that you're asking right now is very pertinent with all of the brouhaha around Facebook and whether Facebook is going to take responsibility for the spread of fake news on the internet. And I think that ultimately, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his team will invent devices that uh, that allow Facebook to label those things that are more credible and less credible in terms of news sources. But I think it's a false hope to to uh, to pin all of the responsibility or or to uh, to to pin our fate to what Facebook does. Uh, whatever Facebook invents, there'll be uh, connivers who find a way to circumvent their way around it. And ultimately, what we have yet to develop as a civilization in the face of a revolution that's, that is uh, no less cataclysmic than the invention of the printing press is what are the devices that ordinary citizens are going to need? What are the, the, the skills and capabilities that they're going to need in order to make thoughtful decisions about the, uh, the, the information that comes across the, trans, the digital transom? And we are in the midst of a, a chaotic phase right now. And uh, I think it's uh, following every major, every major uh, revolution about how we understand ourselves and how we learn about the world. There is a period of, of, of absolute uh, chaos, and we are in it right now. And I think that the, the cries of crisis that we're hearing about fake news are uh, a canary in the mind, if you will. Yes. Um, maybe we can just um, talk a little bit about some of the blind spots that you've discovered in the research that you've done um, concerning how people pass and process information that was that is presented to them and how they manage or don't manage to uh, establish credibility uh, of, of that information and the sources um, that may be uh, responsible for constructing that information that they're presented with? Well, we could start with uh, with students who are in in the United States in what we call middle school and in, in grades uh, uh, seven and eight. They're 12 and 13 years, years old, and, and many of them already possess a smartphone and are what people would call uh, digitally, digital natives. And what we discovered was that uh, making the most rudimentary distinctions between, for instance, an online news story versus an advertisement posed a considerable challenge to students of this age group. Uh, more than 80% of them were unable to distinguish between a news story and content that had been paid for by a commercial sponsor. So that's extremely concerning. Um, at the high school level, we found something uh, not quite as dramatic, but uh, 
but certainly in the same direction, uh, where students would, for instance, evaluate a picture about mutant daisies uh, in the wake of the, uh, the, uh, the tsunami at the Fukushima plant, nuclear plant in Japan. And rather than asking uh, where this particular picture comes from and who posted it and whether it had been photoshopped, students took it at face value and said that it offered, uh, it offered evidence for the effects of nuclear radiation. Um, at university levels, we found uh, we've, we we found very disconcerting results that uh, that university students, in many ways, are ill-equipped to engage in research in a digital format. That they are are far too credulous of sources that come to them and uh, have a difficult time making basic dis- basic distinctions in what is credible and what is not credible. So could could you give me an example of the sorts of um, things sure. that um, college students were falling prone to? So um, there is a, a great prejudice, at least in North America, toward Wikipedia. I don't know if the same obtains in in New Zealand, but uh, we have many many teachers uh, forbidding students to use Wikipedia or uh, demeaning it as a source, despite the fact that it's the seventh most traffic site in the English language. Um, we we gave a task to students to uh, uh, evaluate arguments about gun laws in the United States, where they had to look at a source uh, uh, for uh, pro and con and a thoughtful discussion of the nuances of gun laws and gun legislation. One of the sources was Wikipedia, the entry for for gun laws, which is actually uh, quite a balanced uh, quite a balanced account. And the second was a web page that had a Duke University URL. However, that URL led to a, a, a professor's page where he had posted information about guns that was provided by the National Rifle Association, a group that is, uh, one might say, is the, uh, the strongest proponent of free and open uh, guns uh, the, the use of firearms in the United States. And what we found was that students had a, a, almost a, a, an immediate allergy to Wikipedia. And they said that, that the Duke University site was a better site for uh, finding balanced information about gun laws than Wikipedia, which is, which is just absolutely ludicrous. It's just, uh, it just indicates how students are ill-prepared to, uh, to make these kinds of rudimentary uh, distinctions. So in this case, they actually took the uh, preconception that they had on Wikipedia, mapped that onto the sources that were uh, put before them, and then automatically discounted that, regardless of the content that was presented either on that page or in the alternate page that they were given. That's precisely the case. You find you find uh, university students falling into some old traps that might have been pertinent when the when you know in the in the days when we used a dial-up modem to log on to the internet such as the notion that a dot org a dot org uh, domain name is somehow more credible than another kind of uh, domain name the web has become far more sophisticated there uh, there's there's so much money involved that organizations and lobbyists can game all these kinds of things in ways that they couldn't in the mid 90s and so the internet of, of 2016, 2017 is a much more dangerous place 
where the, the, the old rules simply no longer pertain. And we have to become much more thoughtful and much more savvy about evaluating information. And it's interesting when you say old rules, because I guess that that's uh, very relative, because my sense is, and I'm not sure what yours is, is that the rate of change is accelerating. So the old rules are actually rules that were in place maybe three, four years ago that could get you by in this information landscape. Now, because of, as you say, we have a plethora of multiplication of sites where um, people are going for um, uh, alternative sources of information without necessarily understanding who it is is providing that information, and it's not all that transparent. It's not transparent at all. In fact, it's, it's very, uh, very heavily cloaked. There are many, many uh, uh, front groups and many phantom sites and many sites that misrepresent their real agenda. And so, again, I, I, I want to be cautious not to indict young people. Uh, we have uh, uh, just concluded a study. We haven't published the results yet because we're, we're, we're just writing up the results where we looked at, uh, <coughs> we looked at a group of academics and uh, we found in many cases that uh, people with PhDs who use the Internet all day long for finding information are themselves uh, quite ill-equipped to make these kinds of distinctions. We compared this group of academics to uh, a group of professional fact-checkers at, uh, at many of the, the, the finest and most prestigious publications in the United States. And what we found is, uh, is a quite a different approach to to how one gains footing on on the web when one uh, lands on an unfamiliar site. What the academics tended to do was that they tended to treat a site like a, much like a printed source. We, we characterize it as a, a vertical reading strategy. They read up and down or, or down and up, but their eyes go vertically up and down the page when they land on it. And they often have an overconfidence in their ability to discern hidden meanings or to, uh, to, uh, to ferret out the connotations of, of the text. What we found with fact checkers is that they approach the web quite differently. If, if, if the rest of us read vertically, fact checkers read horizontally. When they land on an unfamiliar site, they're almost immediately off that site, opening up multiple tabs, going to different pages, first getting a fix on the organization that is providing the information before spending a great deal of time thinking and parsing information when they don't even understand the source where it comes from. That's interesting because that, that seems to me, and I, I wonder how much this differed in this academic sample compared to the, the younger groups that you're looking at. But as you're talking, I had thoughts around they're triangulating their sense of confidence in the information that they're reading from their own internal resource, their own internal experience, and then developing a sense of confidence around the information from that internal resource. Whereas what you're saying is that the professional fact checkers immediately went to triangulate from external trusted sources to understand the degree of confidence that they could have in that new information. So as you say, there's that lateral external triangulation and validity checking uh, rather than an I, internal validity checking. I would, I would, just, I would just make one, one uh, uh, small modification to your, to your rephrasing of it. Um, what we're talk, when, when people go to, to sources that they know, whether it's an established 
newspaper, the New York Times comes to mind or the Wall Street Journal in a North American context. Um, they don't need to, they don't necessarily uh, need to triangulate. People for a long time have depended upon these sources because these sources have the uh, internal uh, uh, checks and balances and offer corrections when they've made errors. Mm. Um, but what we're talking about is landing on an unfamiliar source, mm. a source that's not easily recognized. And what you're saying is absolutely true. What it is that most of us do, in uh, uh, young people, college students, as well as degreed university professors, is that they will look at the evaluation and evaluate it in terms of their own prior knowledge. What fact checkers do, and, and I, I want to quote a, a the head fact checking at a major uh, uh, American publication, I'm not at liberty to disclose its name, but she said to me this, and it, it, it really characterizes the fundamental difference between most lay people and professional fact checkers. She said to me that hubris is the enemy of fact checking. And what she meant by that is that the web has become so sophisticated and the ruses so multifarious that a fact checker who has, um, who's in many ways, whose livelihood depends on getting things right cannot rely on their gut instinct. Hmm. Gut instincts are fallible. And when uh, getting things right are at stake, gut, uh, a fact checker goes beyond gut instincts and um, tries to fight all kinds of uh, tendencies toward hubris, towards arrogance. And that's very challenging, I guess, when, we, when, we, uh, when, we ha- when we're quite driven by these instincts and these biases to develop the awareness to consciously combat the the instincts that we have towards uh, uh, accepting or dismissing a piece of information that's in front of us, that takes a lot of effort. Um, it takes less effort than you might think. I mean, it it it, it takes it takes a kind of moral stance, which. Um, uh, the the uh, uh, another researcher at, UC, at University of California Riverside, Joe Kahn, calls a commitment to accuracy. And what we're finding in a digital society now, and you know, again, I think that confirmation biases are are, are rampant. But what we're finding is that a the, a, a traditional commitment to accuracy, irrespective of the of the particular beliefs that we hold. Is deterior has deteriorated and is deteriorating, and I think that we see it, for instance, in the United States, where a president-elect tweets things from from known bogus websites. And so, what what the the the, the challenge of both fake news and the and the the the, the information free for all that we find ourselves in, it means that we we have to rethink our some some basic educational commitments and how do we create programs in our among our youth and in our schools that reconstitute a commitment to accuracy because if we don't have that commitment then it's not simply a, a threat to a threat to the news that we 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 we, we think is going on in the world it, it, it really is the very thing that that undergirds our entire system of jurisprudence if we are not committed to facts and to accuracy then we have no moral grounds to imprison people whether in new zealand or in chicago so part of that is developing the awareness of the problem which i think that your your work and other people are contributing to here but i think that it's becoming 
widely accepted that there is an issue here that we do, we're not completely sure around the processes by which um, we fall prey to this manipulation of fake information, particularly, I think, when it's quite complex. I've come across um, issues where um, sites or uh, sources have wrapped up uh, a fictitious piece of information inside of facts, and then they're People have walked along a path where, well, I know A is true and I know B is true, um, but C I've not heard of before, but because it's next to A and B, I'm going to assume that that's true too. Have you have you come across that where you've seen this, not just the outright, frankly, incorrect information, but where it's been embedded in correct information? There's no particular example that comes to mind, but I but I think that I I think that what you're you're talking about is a uh, is part of the stock and uh, uh, stock and trade of propagandists ever since the time of Aristotle's rhetoric. Mm. So I I think that again that that we have many heuristics for making decisions. Um, you know the the uh, Daniel Kahneman's book talks about all of our, our inferential biases. And I think that we use these these inferential biases and heuristics in many ways as shortcuts for, for not thinking hard. And so um, I think you're quite right that, that uh, those people who want to sway us and uh, do so with uh, full consciousness of their deceit will wrap up uh, false information and things that, uh, that may be true in order to uh, better pull the wool over our eyes. So, Sam, you've talked about some some big issues here, um, and, and I think that um, I want to cut to the, the the chase here in terms of who should care about this this research that you're doing and others are doing, and, and what the point of doing this research is. Where does this take us? Well, I think that uh, I think that the, the the only people who should care are the people who who open up a device, whether a laptop or a smartphone, to learn about the world. And so um, we require, in, at least in this country, for people who want to get a driver's license to take a test and to demonstrate a basic facility in using a machine. But when we think about the duties of citizenship, um, the, the, the the notion of... of uh, Quality information is to uh, democratic functioning what clean air and clean water are to public health. And right now we have a a, uh, a health hazard to democratic functioning. And so the people who should care are the people who constitute the, and determine the curriculum in our schools and the people who worry about the, the, the future of a prosperous and thriving democracy. We've, you've talked a bit about schools and young people there. I'm, I guess um, one of the things you talked about were, were the academics that um, are also full prey to these uh, traps and, and these heuristics, which means that they can't distinguish this fact from fiction particularly well. What about that adult age group? Um, we could talk about curriculum development, certainly for those people who are within the educational system. What about those people who fall without those realms? The The... I'm not sure the the, the the adult group or yes, the adult group. Well, this is I mean, this is a particular problem. So, you know, we I 
we have a, a website with a history curriculum that has close to 4 million downloads and we're used in some of the major cities in the United States and actually all over the world, including New Zealand. Um, and so I'm in, in, in constant contact with educators um, of all ranges from, from all levels. And one of, the, one of the, the, the beliefs that I've continually run into is this notion that uh, it's the kids who know how to use these devices. And it's the kids who are digital natives. And we're digital immigrants, and it's the kids who know how to use these things. And we've, we've, that's a, a very pernicious and false belief. What we've done is we've assumed that because young people are fluent in navigating between Facebook and Twitter and WhatsApp, well, you know, uh, uploading a selfie to Instagram, that beyond this kind of easy fluency lay a vast reservoir of intelligence in, in, in vetting the information that the, these devices actually yield. And so <clears throat> what we first need to do is to correct that misimpression. That is a, a very dangerous misimpression that, uh, that our youngsters – because they are able to operate a device, have an understanding of the information that that device yields. It's like saying that because I can back the car out of my driveway while cradling a cup of coffee, that I'm uh, an authority on a, a fuel-injected engine. I mean, that's simply not the case. And that's analogous to the way that we're thinking about young people on the internet at this point. Um, what we need to do is to recognize that uh, that it's our teachers, it's the adults who are the gatekeepers to what young people will learn. And um, right now, at least in the United States, uh, there are many classrooms where the internet is filtered or even not allowed at all. And essentially what, what school has become is it's become the last bastion that protects young people from the world rather than preparing them to deal with it. Mm. So this is a vast educational challenge. And as I said earlier, we, we have invented devices that are handling us, not us, them. And so, uh, so this really uh, requires a fundamental rethinking of business as usual in the way that we think about education. Uh, back when I was a youngster, I was sort of brought into a kind of sacred order of going to the public library and learning how to use the social citation uh, index and, and the guide to periodic literature. Um, that's that's simply not the case anymore. What what was once the uh, the the responsibility of librarians and subject matter experts and publishers now falls on the shoulders of anybody who uses a computer to learn about the world. So certainly equipping ourselves, um, but also thinking about the education environment, making sure that our children, our young people, are equipped to deal with how to process information in this world where actually you are. Uh, responsible to curate and to fact check your the information that's being presented in front of you it, it becomes the real challenge that is the real challenge and the question is whether we as a society are up to it how do you how do adults break out of the bubble that they can create for themselves when they do you know perhaps prefer to exist in this comfort zone and have people talk to them where the beliefs are roughly similar uh, because anything else feels too challenging. How, how is it that people could break out of that bubble? Do you have any uh, instances where people have deliberately tried to step outside of that and what's worked? Well, this is a huge problem and it's one that's getting, getting worse. And in, in, in the olden days, 
uh, we when there were uh, a few television stations and uh, uh, some major newspapers, we were often exposed to beliefs that we ordinarily wouldn't wouldn't want to be exposed to. But uh, now when we tailor our RSS feeds and our websites and our, our daily digital diet to, uh, to, in many ways, feed our narcissism, we've created what uh, Cass Sunstein calls echo chambers that, that, that flatter and, uh, and further crystallize things that we already believe. So this is a huge problem. Um, you know, there, and I, I, anecdotally, I don't think that, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know if anyone's come up with a response to it, but certainly there are, are, are stories or, uh, kind of anecdotal tidbits, uh, where people who have a commitment to encountering ideas that are, are ones that they don't already believe that they use to, to try to encounter them. I, I can tell you what I do personally. I, I have Facebook friends um, who I purposely maintain on Facebook because they are, in many ways, hold beliefs that I find abhorrent. Um, but it puts me into contact with them. It helps me at least understand the underlying logic of the way that they think. And uh, I think this is I think this is a challenge of modern society when it becomes so easy to insulate ourselves inside of a inside of a cocoon of like-minded people. And I think you're speaking there of something quite deep. Uh, it's I guess it's not just an information uh, and the beliefs that people uh, may have that are different to yours, but it's the sense of dissonance and uh, emotional spiking that that may generate inside you, and whether you have the skills um, and the knowledge to be able to manage that. And I think that that's um, something that people struggle with and, and they try to manage uh, to reduce their exposure to those feelings of dissonance such that they don't feel that emotional spike because they find it quite overwhelming uh, when, then that, when that occurs. Well, I, again, I, I, I think that this is, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that we are hardwired to affiliate with those who share our belief system and at its worst, to ostracize those who don't and to demonize those who don't. But, you know, if we're not talking about off-the-wall beliefs that advocate racism and violence and, uh, and break the law, but we're talking about different kinds of positions in the public square, let's take a controversial issue that, that uh, all democratic countries have had to deal with, which is the issue of abortion. There are a range of beliefs about it. Um, what, what I think a challenge for both an individual as well as for a civic society is to create a forum where we do not demonize those who think differently from ourselves, but we recognize that there are multiple perspectives on controversial issues and the way that we deal with them in a thoughtful and, uh, and flourishing democracy is to is to deal with these conflicts and differences of opinion at the ballot box. And that again sounds like a much deeper kind of conversation around what is the society uh, what is a society that we wish to live in look like uh, and how do uh, voices of difference how are they dealt with and heard and then decided upon? How does that discussion take place? 
exactly. And, uh, and, and if you have looked at the comments section of major sources of information, whether they are newspapers or television stations, they are in many cases, uh, at least in this country, and I would imagine that you would encounter the same thing in yours, they are rather than places of civic and thoughtful discussion, they are more like cesspools where, uh, where invective is the order of the day rather than civil discourse. That's not an unfamiliar situation here either. And I know many uh, websites that have turned that comment function off just because of the level of vitriol that it can attract. Exactly. And so how do we, how, these are new ways of communicating in a public sphere. Um, I think you would be hard pressed to find a half dozen good curricula throughout the English speaking world that prepare young people to be thoughtful and polite and engaged commentators on comment sections on public internet forums. I think that's just, that's simply an example of how rapid the change has been and how slow we've been to take up the challenge. And in those curricula that you have come across, are there any particular recommendations that stand out for you? I mean, one of the best, one of the best, and again, it goes back to uh, the difficulty that we have as a species in doing this, is to try to engage in the intellectual exercise of Framing an argument from the perspective of a position that you do not embrace. So even if it were an intellectual exercise, what would that argument look like? Uh, A contentious debate going on in this country is about the legalization and decriminalization of marijuana. Many young people are in favor of that. Many young people have experimented with it. It's It's not a big thing in this country anymore. But there are people who are vociferously against it. A a very important exercise would be to require those people who are on either side of this position to try to come up with a thoughtful and logical 300-word response that is posted on a public website in which they embrace a position that they ordinarily would not embrace. So this reminds me of the kind of uh, the sort of debating skills that you would practice in an oral um, medium where you would be asked to take a position that actually was uh, something that you didn't feel wholeheartedly behind, but it was an academic exercise. And you're thinking that actually doing this uh, in an Internet forum would be a valuable skill not just in terms of how to have a civilized debate from the other alternative perspective, but also to broaden one's uh, exposure outside of one's own bubble. I, I, I think that's quite right. I, the, the, the goal too often of a debate, however, is to win. The goal of the exercise that I'm talking about is to understand. Mm. 
Sam, that's been a fantastic conversation. I was just wondering if um, there were any other things that the professional fact checkers did um, that we could learn from in, in our everyday usage of the internet and thinking about how we assess the quality of the information that we come across. Well, I'll, I'll give you uh, two additional tips uh, uh, in addition to the one that I've already mentioned, which is the opening up of multiple tabs and not spending a great deal of time on an unknown website until you understand where that website is coming from. Two additional things that are, are somewhat counterintuitive because they go against what people what uh, they go against in many ways the uh, the advice that you'll find for uh, establishing web credibility. Uh, one of them is uh, fact checkers know that the issue is not about about the uh, uh, you can look at many uh, guides for web credibility and they'll say go immediately to the about page on a website. Again, this was this might have been useful advice 15 years ago or five years ago even or even 10 years ago. But at this point, there are so many ruses and so many, so much duplicity on the web that if an organization can uh, register as a, a uh, an NGO, they certainly can write whatever they want on an about page. And so in many ways, fact checkers take what a, a website says about itself with a grain of salt. And then finally, um, one of the things that that profoundly and dramatically distinguishes uh the approach of fact checkers from university students as well as many, many thoughtful adults is that <coughs> what university students typically do is that they will, they will impute to Google a kind of celestial intelligence and confuse uh, a page rank, the, 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 the order in which results are issued by Google with a kind of uh, seal of approval of trustworthiness. So the, they will assume that the higher up a result is, the more credible or, or trustworthy it is. And that, that kind of belief flies in the face of uh, search engine optimization and all of, the way that, all of the ways that search is gamed when so much money is at stake. And fact checkers will almost, will, will almost instinctively look beyond the first page of results to go to the second and third and fourth and fifth page of results on Google because they understand the way that uh, SEOs, search engine optimizers, game the system and, and in many ways pollute the kind of uh, credibility rankings that uh, – or, or not the credibility rankings but simply the order rankings that Google issues. So um, beware of the first few results in Google um, and look beyond that first page of results as you're trying to, uh, to pursue the question of credibility. I hope you've enjoyed the seventh show in this first season of Who Cares? What's the Point? You can find the abstract and the link to the paper and the report in the show notes to this podcast or if you go to the website. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter at WCWTP or me, your host and producer, Saab Johal, at Saab, S-A-R-B. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Please send feedback through any channel. It's great to hear from you. So see you next week on... Who cares? What's the point? Thank you.